Let's go ahead and get started today and uh, open our word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for today, for your grace to us, for thank you for giving us such a beautiful day to be out to your house to study your word, to be encouraged from it. I pray to open our hearts and minds now as we study. Thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we are working our way on down through the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And Donna asked me earlier, she said, what about the whales? You got the seals, but not the whales. <laughs> so you got to, you know, what do you do? You just sort of go with it, you know. Um, you just sort of go with it. But I think you've seen this slide. Um, Dan, I updated Dan's slides with the new stuff, so we got it all on there. So we'll go through this. But we're talking about the Great Tribulation here, this time in between the church age and the millennium in which God pours out judgment upon the earth. Um, he pours judgment out to end the rule of man and also to bring Israel to repentance. I mean, that's the real um, purpose of the tribulation, to bring Israel to a point, national Israel, to a point where they recognize their Messiah as the Messiah. Because right now they're going to, not right now, but in the, millennium, or in the tribulation, they're going to put their faith in a false Messiah, the Antichrist, the instead of Christ. And how do you know that? Well, the Antichrist is going to make a treaty with Israel for seven years. So who are they trusting? The Antichrist to give them peace. And the tribulation is designed as a final judgment by God on the wickedness of mankind. But the real purpose is to bring Israel to national repentance. And that's going to take seven years um, to do. And then Dan went through this. I'm not going to go through all of these here, but... You know, what is the Great Tribulation, known by 12 different names. Um, there's some general passages here regarding the length is seven years. How do we know that? Daniel 9. We talked about the 490 years. In fact, it's, right it's still on the board. So that shows how, how much the room is used. It's still up there on the board. Um, 483 years have already passed, but there's seven years yet to um, be done. And that's going to be the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. What starts it? The seven-year treaty. He's going to make a treaty with many for one week. Who's going to do that? The prince that will come. Who's that? The Antichrist. We talked about that in Daniel chapter 9. What does it, what's it do? To finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring an everlasting righteousness to seal up or to complete fully the vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy place. When does that all happen? The millennium. So what's the purpose of the tribulation? It's to usher in the millennium. And the only way the millennium will be ushered in is for Israel as a nation to turn back to God. Not as individuals, but as a nation to turn back to God. What about the first three and a half years, peace? In fact, in the New Testament it says when they say peace and safety, what's going to happen? Sudden destruction. Everybody thinks that, hey, we finally got this thing solved. We finally figured out how to run ourselves. We finally figured out how to govern ourselves. And for three and a half years, things are going to be relatively calm and peaceful, and, and things are going to be pretty good. But then what happens? Bam. The middle of the tribulation hits. All hell breaks loose. The seals begin to be unfolded. The trumpets sound, and the bowls are poured out. And that is the culmination. And again, the imagery is that of a woman in childbirth. You know, she's doing fine, all of a sudden, boom, the birth pangs hit, and they get worse and worse, and finally, bang, out comes the baby. But it gets worse and worse towards the end as the time draws near. And Christ often used the illustration of a woman giving birth to talk about this time. And what happens is you see in Matthew 24 that went through a gathering storm. It's... Things are just starting to, uh, to, to, be, to be set up for this time of great tribulation. And then that's what the last three and a half years is called. Remember the great tribulation. There's tribulation, but there's the great tribulation. Now, um, Dan talked about the threefold division of Revelation. Here's the unfolding of the great tribulation. Now, what do we mean by great tribulation? What part of it we're talking, are we talking about? The great tribulation. Second half. Okay. Now, there's a sense in which many would say that the first seal, what is that? The rider on the white 
horse, who is the force of peace. Going forth to conquer and to conquer, notice he doesn't have any arrows. He has a bow, but no arrows. What do you know about the Antichrist? How is he going to come to power? Is he going to um, militarily take over? No. Peaceful means. In fact, the world is going to almost push it upon him. They're going to want him to do this. Why? Because he seems to be the one that can finally bring peace and order out of chaos. And he's going to be able to, in fact, and Daniel says with his many flatteries, his words, his, his, his political acumen is what's going to give him power, and that's how he's going to rise to power. Yeah. A lot of people want to pin that onto Armageddon. That is not Armageddon. Not yet. Yeah. Armageddon is at the end. So it's a general statement of the abyss is towards the culmination. Right. That. Yeah. And remember, you know, and we've made this comment several times before. God's given us the grand picture. He's given us the what do you want to call? It? It's sort of like you ever you ever watch ESPN. Who's the guy on ESPN that does the three minutes of the football? And he's going all over, whatever it is. You know, who's that guy? What's uh, Chris Burns, all right. And uh, this is the Chris Burns overview. I mean, you've got a lot of stuff going on in a football game, but when he does the football game, he's not going to go through all three hours of it. What's he going to hit? The highlights. Revelation is giving you the highlights. It's giving you the grand picture. It's not giving you all the gory details. So don't try to fill in all the gory details, but you can hang your hat on those grand things that are happening. And what do we know about the first three and a half years? It's peaceful, and the storm is gathering. Now, most people don't know that because, again, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes. They're not prepared for it. And remember... Which one of the pictures in Matthew 24 of the second coming of Christ? The days of Noah, right? Now, what were they doing in the days of Noah? They were eating, drinking, marrying. It's life. They were planning parties. They were planning activities. And the next thing you know, what happens? Wham! Rain out of the sky. We've never seen that before. It's going to catch them by surprise. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. But then we have the first part of God's judgment falling in the seven seals, the, the rider on the white horse. Then you have the red horse, again, war, famine, pestilence, all those things go together, right? If you have worldwide war, what happens to the crops? You can't produce crops. So if you don't have crops and you don't have basic food necessities, what happens to people? They starve. If they have people starving and dying and a lot of death around, what happens? You have pestilence. You have all kinds of things going on. And then last week we talked about the trumpets. So let's forward here. Dan did a good job going through the seals. So let's, let's back up and let's look at our trumpets here. Last week we started with trumpet number one. Hail and fire mingled with blood. And we made the statement that most likely this is what? Meteor shower. Alright. How many people saw the Perside meteor shower? You know, that was, yeah, it was three, well, you're up at 3.30, I mean, good night, you're up at two, right? Yeah. Um, he turns off at eight o'clock, Barry does, he just turns off, I've never seen it. Nine? All right. He just turns off, it's like, it's like he's there, he's there, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, that's the end. But he's up at four, so, you know. I like what Vance Havner says, the problem with people who get up early is they brag about it. You know? um, but what do you have? You have hail and fire mingled with blood. What is this? This is a, a meteor shower. Now, again, we made the statement that when John is writing this, he is writing from the perspective of a first century Jewish person who has not seen the movies that we have seen. So how is he going to describe things? He's going to describe things in terms that people of that time can understand and comprehend. They understood hail. They, underst they remember seeing hail. And when hail falls from the sky, it's round little ice things, right? So that's what he's seeing. And most likely, 
This is a meteor shower. And of course, if the meteors are, you get a large shower of meteorites that are very hot hitting the earth, what happens to the stuff that they hit? Burns up. So what's going to happen? Um, a third of the trees are burned and all green grass is burned. Grass is very flammable, right? So it's going to burn. Most likely it's a meteor shower. And then this meteor shower is followed by what? Well, another large meteor. And what does this do? It hits the sea. Now, we made the statement, if this hits in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, what happens? Explode. Yeah, it's not only going to explode, because by the way, the meteor is extremely hot and the sea is extremely cold. And what happens when you dunk really, really, really hot metal in really, really, really cold water? blows up, explodes. And what's going to happen to a third of the ocean life? Dead. The catastrophe of this thing hitting the water is phenomenal. A third of the ships are destroyed. Now, does that mean exactly one-third of all ships in the world? No, he's saying, you know, about a third of the ships are destroyed, right? Well, if that thing hits in the Pacific where there's a lot of shipping, what's going to happen? That's about a third of the ships. The catastrophic tidal waves and the disruption is going to destroy and sink thousands and thousands of ships. This is, uh, and by the way, the third of the sea becomes blood. Now, does it become literal, physical hemoglobin? No, it doesn't. What, what's it most likely, what's most likely he is saying? What is he most likely saying? From his perspective, what did the sea look like? Red. And quite honestly, if a meteor hits and it's mainly made of iron, what happens when all those iron particles get in the water and rust? Looks red. All right. And, and I'm, let me just stop here a minute. When we start talking about the trumpets, we start talking about the bulls, again, John is using what we would call accommodational language. What do you mean by that? He's trying to accommodate the vocabulary and the understanding of somebody in his time. He's not trying to make a scientific statement about things. He doesn't say one-third of the sea becomes red due to the iron oxides in the water. He's looking at it from the perspective component, from what does it look like to me? How does it look? Now, a lot of people get hung up on that because there are people that argue, say, look, if the Bible says it's literal blood, it's literal blood. Now, wait a minute. By the way, first of all, could God do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, he can do anything he wants. But what would happen... Just think ecologically, what would happen if one-third of the sea became literal, physical hemoglobin? Talk about a massive cleanup effort. Now, again, God could do anything he wants, right? He's all omnipotent, all-powerful. He could do what he wants. But I don't think that's what's being said here. I think what's being said here is that this is accommodational language. John is looking at it from the perspective of someone who's trying to observe this and explain what it looks like. And what it looks like to him is the water turns to blood. And then what do you have? You have the third trumpet that falls. Another meteor hits. And what does this meteor hit? Well, it hits the fresh water. Did you know that one-fifth of the world's fresh water is in lakes Erie and Huron and Superior and all that? One-fifth. I don't know if you ever knew that. What would happen if uh, all of a sudden all the water in the Great Lakes became poisonous? Yeah, you got real problems, because where do we get our water? Evidently, this meteor hits a third of the world's fresh water and it becomes bitter. What it, he says it, it, the star is called wormwood. Well, in those days, what was wormwood? It was a bitter, poisonous substance. That's what he's trying to talk about. Some of it is a bitter, poisonous substance. And I read somewhere where one of the components of a meteor is arsenic. How poisonous is arsenic? Very. All right. There's a lot of nasty chemicals in those meteorites. And you get the wrong chemicals in the fresh water supply, and you've got real problems. And by the way, if a meteor explodes and you've got dust settling into the water supply, that's even worse, right? It just contaminates it. And of course, if you're in an area where you can't decontaminate the water, what happens? You have nothing to drink. You die of thirst. This is just a, a massive ecological disaster that God brings. And then what's the fourth trumpet? Well, the fourth trumpet sounds and a third of the sun is turned dark. What does that mean? Does God actually physically turn down the light of the sun? 
Well, probably not, because he turns down the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars. So what is that talking about? Well, if you've got all of this junk just thrown up into the air, the dust and the, the water vapor and the smoke from all the things that have burned up, what's going to happen to the sun? It's going to be dimmed. In fact, it says that the... Yeah, it says it goes down by one-third. That's a lot. That's a lot. Now, we talked about Krakatoa when it blew up last, year, last week. We talked about that. When that mountain blew up, it was only one mountain that went up into the upper atmosphere. And it lowered the worldwide temperature by an average of, I think, one or two degrees, which caused starvation across Europe. You can go back and see tombstones in Europe and records in Europe of the winters that were caused by this thing. It's, it's a mass, and that was just one. What would happen, and by the way, the sun was not dimmed by a third there. The sun was turned down just a little, little itty bitty bit. What happens if the sun goes down by a third? You've got real problems. You've got real problems. And then we have trumpet number five. What is that? God opens up the bottomless pits and lets out these demonic locusts. They look like locusts. Now, don't, let me, don't get me trying to explain what those are. They have all kinds of weird things that come out of that. I think you just take the Bible for what it says. What's the big picture item? Some creature is going to be coming out of there. That looks, you know, it gives sort of a, a, a general idea of what it looks like. It looks sort of like a locust, like a locust from hell. And that's what it is, a locust from hell. And it has a sting, and when it stings people, what does it feel like to them? Scorpion. And again, if you go out and do a research on this, the scorpion bite is probably one of the most painful bites a human being can get. Because it's a neurotoxin that shuts down the, ability, the body's ability to turn off pain. This is extremely painful. And it says it's going to be so painful that people are going to want to die and they can't. They're going to try to kill themselves and it's not going to work to get away from the pain. It's agony. It's agonizing. And these demon, demonic locusts have power for five months to torment men. And by the way, how are, how are men going to respond? Are they going to repent? They're going to curse God. They're going to curse God. When Cain was confronted about his sin, how did he respond to God? Did he say, gee, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that? No. He said, you're being too hard on me. It's not fair, you're being too hard on me. He's whining. And I think we don't understand just how depraved we are. We're, we're depraved people, and humans are depraved. And when God brings these judgments, instead of driving men to repentance, it's going to drive them to curse God. Yeah. They know he's there, they know he's doing it, but instead of bringing them to repentance, it drives them away because why? They are rebellious. They're wicked. They have no desire for God. And all they can do, instead of saying, I'm sorry and owning up to their sin, they just want to curse God. But they're not going to be able to die. It's going to torment them for five months. Yes. Mm-hmm. versus the accommodational language right. seas turning to blood and mm-hmm. sun going dark, moon and stars going dark. Okay. When time is given as a span with a name to it, mm-hmm. like a half hour, like five months, right. whatever, three and a half years and so forth, I think that is, and I'm not... I'm just saying this to say that at first I was thinking, well, if accommodational language is really what the sea turning to blood or the sun going dark is all about, what about the reference to half hours and five months and so forth? I think time is not not uh, uh, 
accommodational. Figurative. I think time yeah. is literal. And I think you're right in that. Again, when we say we use accommodational language or we use what we call the historical grammatical hermeneutic mm -hmm. or literal hermeneutic, right. the rule is you interpret it literally unless there is reason right. to interpret it figuratively. There's no reason to interpret time figuratively. Right. That's what the covenant theologian guys do. They come along and say, well, when it says a thousand years in Revelation 20, that's just an indeterminate period of time because Revelation is full of figurative language, so 1,000 is figurative. But the argument back to that is, well, you've got five months, you've got 42 months, you've got three and a half years, you've got 1,260 days, you've got 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, you've got seven trumpets, and yep, there's seven of them there, you've got seven bulls, yep, there's seven. The point is, in Revelation, there's no number that is figurative. They're all literal. Now, if Christ says about five months, then you can, you know, maybe it's a day or two either way. But the point is, when you come to, to time in the prophetic passages, I think you take it literally. I think you take the numbers for what they are. I don't think you explain them away and say, well, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Well, that, that's just talking about God being outside of time. That's not giving you a mathematical equation for computing days. Or, or schedules. And that's what you see, by the way, when you pick up a book where they said they've got the date of the, the rapture figured out, that's what they do with the numbers. They do all kinds of whiz-bangery and weirdness with numbers. And look, life is way too short to read that stuff. Just don't look at it. By the way, I just heard a guy, Harold Camping, I forget. He came out and he's got May 11, 2011 is the rapture. I think it's May 11th or May 12th, one. That's the rapture, so he's figured it out. Um, so I'll, we'll, we'll, next summer we'll talk about him. Um, trumpet six. What's trumpet six? It's demonic. She just got it. <laughs> trumpet six is a, an army of 200 million. 200 million. Now, some have said, well, this is uh, the Chinese army. Well, maybe it could be. Um, others say, well, no, this is just uh, an army of demons. How many demons are there, by the way? Yeah, there's a lot more than that. Um, not really sure about this one. We'll find out when we get to heaven, I think. But what? I personally cannot even start to believe that it's a Chinese army. Yeah. Because that would mean everybody in the world, every every ethnic group, race, etc., except for Chinese, are on God's side. Duh. Yeah, it doesn't make any so sense. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I I I would not put it at the Chinese militia or people's army. I I would say there's some kind of demonic army who is. By the way, and they're behind what? They're behind nations. They're behind people. And what are they going to do? They're going to incite this war that's going to kill a third of mankind. Is it a third here? Yeah, a third. Now, how many people is that? Well, right now, it's somewhere in the north side of two billion, right? Think of that. Two billion people. One out of every three people die. Can't imagine it. But that's what's going on here with the final judgments. Yeah, who can bury them? You know, um, you're going to have areas of the world that are almost uninhabitable to the death and, and, and the sense there. Um, not exactly sure. I think they're more like demonic forces. Now, we do know that God has bound demons in the bottomless pit, right? Yeah. How do we know that? Well, Peter tells us that. Jude tells us that. And when the Christ met the maniac at Gadara, what did they beg him not to do? Don't send us to the abyss, to the pit. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. So we know that they're there. And we know that demons are very wicked, if they've got a short time, they're going to wreak as much havoc as possible in as short a time as they can. I think this is a demonic army of some sorts that, that is behind the, some of the final wars because the last part of the tribulation is going to be characterized by war after war after war, culminating in which one? Armageddon. Why would it maybe be 
even a demonic army? Why couldn't it be 200 million people? It could. Yeah. It could. But the, the, the thing is here, it says they come out of the bottomless pit. Oh, okay. All right? So that sort of gets you an idea that they're demonic of some yeah. nature. Now, again, these demonic... Think of 200 million of the most... Now, by the way, the, when you think about order of magnitude, the demons in the bottomless pit, are they nicer or worse than the ones that are free? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to... Yeah, they're bad, but they're, they're bad, bad, you know. They're the ones that are going to be getting out. Yeah, think about, going to, think about going to the supermax prison and letting out all the serial killers. All right? Um, these are bad, and they are going to be behind the wars, the final wars that kill a third of humanity. That's a lot of people that are going to die. Yeah. Now some have tried to say, well, that's talking about tanks and all kinds. Well, look, you know, I, I wouldn't go there. I think you take it for what it is. I mean, you've got 200 million demons released from the bottomless pit that are there to cause and wreak havoc. And they're going to do that. What's trumpet seven? Trumpet. Now, by the way, in between us, and I didn't, I didn't put this on the slides because we'd be here through December. Can't do that. Um, but you have chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13, and 14 of the book of Revelation. And we don't have time to go through all of what's in those chapters. So what I'd recommend you do is if you want to do that, um, go out to the theopenword.org website. There's some write-ups on eschatology there, and we do go through that in those, in those documents. But in chapter 10, we have a vision of Christ who comes to basically claim the earth. In chapter 11, we have the ministry of the two witnesses. Now, again, there's been a lot of trees killed over that. Who are they? Well, we don't really know who they are. They're speculation, but we do know this. They are supernaturally empowered by God to do what? Miracles. They can protect themselves. They can call down fire from heaven. They can destroy their enemies. But what's going to happen... Three and a half years into their ministry. <coughs> Excuse me. Who's going to kill him? Um, the Antichrist. The Antichrist. What's going to immediately make him a celebrity? Because here's these three guys or two guys that have tormented people for two, three and a half years, and finally the Antichrist is able to successfully kill them. So much so, and it's going to be such a celebration. This is interesting. They're going to be people are going to be sending gifts to one another. Think about that. Think about that. Can you imagine having two people killed on TV? And by the way, this says the whole world's going to see them, and we know that works right now with the internet and television and all that. Two people are dying, and, every, and, and it's immediately, it's a three-day holiday for everybody in the world. Three-day holiday. We finally got rid of these guys. On the third day, they're going to rise up, I think, and that, that's a good question. I think the best way to understand it, and the way I understand it, is that they are here during the first three and a half years. That's my best understanding. Because they are allowed to minister for three and a half years. Right, they're killed. Right. And then what happens after, what, three and a half days? They rise up. Yeah, they rise up, go up to heaven. Now that'll sort of, now can you imagine seeing that on TV? These guys that are there dead, and all of a sudden they just get up and go right up into heaven. All right? And immediately there's a great earthquake, I think, if I remember correctly. So what are these two witnesses? Where they are super, Here's the point. God has his protected people that are there to give him a witness. During the first three and a half years, who are they? The, well, they're the remnant, but they're these two special super witness people that the Antichrist can't kill. Now some have said, well this is Moses and Elijah. Some have said this is Enoch and Elijah. Look, I don't know who they are. The description so perfectly 
They do. They do. But then the question goes back to, it's appointed unto man once to die after that, the judgment. I don't know. Seriously, I don't know. Okay? Um, I don't think anybody knows. There's, it's all speculation at this point because the Bible doesn't make it clear. The Bible says they're just these two supernaturally protected men that are able to be a witness. And then, of course, throughout the tribulation, who else is being supernaturally protected? The 144,000 that are there. They're unable to be killed. Now, that'll really frost the Antichrist because he wants to stamp out the witness of Christ. But here's you've got these guys that are supernaturally protected during the first three and a half years. You've got the 144,000 that are protected. We see their sealing, by the way, in chapter 7 of Revelation. 144,000 are sealed. All right, And that would be when? When would their sealing occur? If it's in chapter 7, in the, in the middle of the seals. Probably about the middle point, right? So in the first three and a half years, who's the witness? The two witnesses in the last three and a half years, what do you have? 144,000 supernaturally protected men that are able to witness and, and, and give a testimony of the gospel. There's more than just them. Okay, because someone said, well, they're the ones that get to enter the millennium and, you know, they're the ones that will repopulate the earth. All right, well, let's see. It says 144,000 men. What about the women? You got a problem there, right? They're not the whole remnant. They're part of the remnant, but they're not the whole remnant. There, there's going to be others that are going to enter in fact, in Zechariah 14, 13 and 14, it says one-third of Israel will turn back and be saved. One-third. Two-thirds will be cut off. One-third will repent. All right? And they are the remnant that enters. Now, there's also going to be some Gentiles that enter. Not a lot, but there's going to be some. Matthew 25 talks about them. All right? But... The point is that God has, according to Revelation 7, Revelation 14, and Revelation 11, he's got his voice on this earth that's untouchable by the Antichrist. God is not without a witness. He's got people here. Yeah, understand. This is chapter 11, verse 10. Yeah. That man is becoming hopelessly depraved and totally, you know, I don't want to hear the gospel. Right. When you go through the book of Revelation and it talks about those who dwell on the earth, that's always a reference to the unbelievers. Always a reference to the unbelievers. And. What you see here is, is, is I think, a very, is, is an illustration that if God does not open one's eyes to understand the truth, what will every human being do? They'll miss it. It could be staring them in the face. It could be right in front of them. They could have all the evidence in the world and they won't see it. They won't see it. They exchange presents. And you know what? They got the book of Revelation. They can go read what's going on. Right? And you can bet that the 144,000 are certainly quoting the word of God. And saying this was written in Revelation. You see the events happening. But if you are rebellious and you are unregenerate and you are depraved, you won't see it. You don't want to believe you will not believe. In spite of the evidence, you won't believe. Alan, what really blew me away is uh, in chapter 11, verse 12, it said, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And they still didn't believe. Nope. Look at Christ. He's raising the dead. He's healing everybody. 
He's doing miracle after miracle, casting out demons, and the Pharisees' conclusion is, he's a demon. Oh, that really makes sense. You know, it's a good thing I don't get recorded when I'm watching television. Because I was watching a really cool special on TV. It's about the Vampirotuthicus infernalis. It's a squid. It's about that big. It looks like a, it's all the demon squid from hell. It lives like at 3,000 feet down in the ocean. But it was a little special on, you know, they captured one. I mean, just a weird looking animal, really weird. And the guy was waxing on about how it was the common ancestor to the octopus and the squid and on and on and on and on. And I'm just saying, you idiot, you dummy, you dorkhead, what's wrong with you? What do you, you, you're so smart and you're an idiot. I, mean, I was probably saying some other things there too that I'd rather not put on tape, but it's like, it's like, he doesn't, he doesn't know God, what else is he going to believe? What else are you going to believe? I look at that creature and say, man, God created some really cool animals in the, in the sea. They had one, they, he was showing one of them that was 100 feet long, and it was, it's a colony animal. And it's uh, jellyfish, little jellyfishes, and they string themselves together. They're like 100 years, uh, yeah, 100 years, 100 feet long. And, they, and each jellyfish, some of them have specialized functions, like some of them digest food for the colony, some do this for them. Amazing. And some idiot says, well, isn't it wonderful how evolution came up with that? And it's like, Kush. well, if you don't know God, what are you going to believe, right? And what happens in this time, people don't know God, what are they going to believe? They're not going to believe. Marshall, you're... eyes are darkened. And now, yeah. I mean, I was just, I, I, a friend of mine and I, we meet every Saturday, every Saturday we can, down Lodi, and we have a Bible study at Bob Evans. And um, we're going through John chapter 6. And Christ, of course, in John 6, he has the, the people coming, and he says, I'm the bread of life. And he says, if you believe on me, you'll never thirst, and you'll never hunger. And they said, well, give us this bread that we may eat it. And he says, well, you, you need to believe on me, but you can't believe on me because it's not been given to you of the Father. You're not, if you don't believe on me, you can't have the bread of life. And what you see there is that, look, there, there's a depravity in all of us that's got to be overcome. Somehow, somehow you've got to explain how God opens our eyes to help us see. But once our eyes are open, we can understand the truth. Until they're opened, it's a, it's, it's, it's a closed book to us. People won't believe. Oh, absolutely, the Holy Spirit will be here. Yes. You know, this idea that somehow the Holy Spirit takes a nap, you know, takes a leave of absence during the tribulation is wrong. I mean, unless he's here, no one's regenerate. Now, he's not here in the sense of indwelling believers like he is now, but he's certainly active here. It's not that he's not here. He is here. Because if he wasn't, no one would believe. But in Trumpet 6, you have this demonic army, and then... And then you know, between 6 and 7, we have the interlude. We have the, the um, chapter 10, Christ, chapter 11, the witnesses. Chapter 12, we have the discussion of the beast and the false prophet, 12 and 13. We talked about that earlier. Chapter 14, we have some visions of the end. We got visions of the three angels with their messages. One flying in the middle of the heaven preaching the everlasting gospel. What's that? You better repent because the kingdom of heaven is what? Here. 
time to repent. All right? And then you've got also the vision of Armageddon, the wine press, in chapter 14. Now, that, that, in those days, they understood what a wine press was. What do you do in a wine press? You put the grapes in there and you squeeze them and it comes out. Juice. And he uses that imagery to refer to Armageddon, to refer to the final judgment where the blood is going to come out even in some places of the horse's bridles. How high is that? I'm told about six feet. Now that doesn't mean that the entire, and we're going to talk about the Battle of Armageddon next week probably, but you've got a, the Valley of Israelin is where this is going to happen. It's 200 miles long and I forget how many miles wide. Um, it doesn't mean that the entire valley becomes a lake of blood and carnage. That's not what it's talking about. But in some places, what's going to happen? It's going to be that deep. You talk about massive carnage. And of course, who helps clean it up but the birds? They're called in to eat the flesh of the people. And also in chapter 14, you have the vision of the, hundred, or of the 144,000 witnesses who are on Mount Zion. Now, where is Mount Zion? Jerusalem. This is an image of the end, I think. Did they get all the way through the tribulation? Yeah. They were protected by God. They had his seal on them, which means to Satan, you can't touch. Now, this is interesting. Think about this. Think about the sovereignty of God. Here you've got a worldwide system that is bent on destroying God. It's run by Antichrist, Satan. All the demons are, at, are running amok. God has confined them to this planet. They can't get back into the third heaven to be with God. They're, they know their time is short. And if you have your seal of God on you, what can they not do? Touch you. God is sovereign. God sovereignly protects those of his own. And in spite of Satan, and by the way, Satan would love to do nothing more than destroy them. And he is told, hands off. You can't touch him. Look, Satan is on a leash, folks. Satan is not going to pull this thing off. The only freedom Satan has to do what he does is given to him by God to fulfill God's purposes. Other than that, Satan is bound. He is not going to do anything he wants to do. But God sovereignly protects them during this time. And again, if you want to read about these, um, these, the middle chapters here, go out and look at the website because we just don't have time to really explore it all in the class here because we need another 10 weeks to pull that one off. All right, so please go out and, and look at that. I don't want, I'm not trying to beg off on it. All the information's there, but that's where you'll get it because we're running out of weeks to finish our course here. Um, Trumpet 7, it says the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of Christ. What does that mean? The imminency of his return is right here. And the final trumpet comes into what? What, what, what comes out of the final seventh trumpet? Seven bowls. And again, what are these bowls we're talking about? They're not like, you know, big fruit bowls. They're, they're censers. They're, think of, an, of a very shallow bowl. And it was used in the temple for the coals. All right? And so you've got an angel who has the censer. There's, there's seven of these. And they pour them out in rapid succession. And I think these vial judgment, they, some call it the vial or the bowls, better, better translated bowls, occur right at the end of the tribulations. Bang, 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 bang. One after another. Again, what's the imagery? Birth pangs. Right at the end, what happens? Boom, 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 boom. Rapid succession. All right, and we have the seven trumpets, or seven bowls. What's the first bowl? Boils on men. Where, did, where else did we read about boils on men? The plague. Some of these are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. Um... The scope of this vial is limited to, or the bowl is limited to the followers and worshipers of Antichrist. Boy, I'll tell you what, you'll know who the Antichrist followers are, right? If they're covered with boils, you'll know who they're following. And by the way, if you're not covered with boils, what does that mean? Yeah, you sort of stand out in the crowd, don't you? By the way, there's no, there's no secret Christians back, back here, you know, you sort of like blend in with the crowd, you know, you're going to be standing out. You're the one that's not going to get stung. You're the one that's not going to have boils all over you. He's, and this is the point. When God pours out his wrath and judgment, who does he really spare? The redeemed. Right? He spares the redeemed. These are boils. Now, you understand, when we say boil, we don't mean little boil. We mean painful boil. Anybody have a really painful boil? Anybody have one of those? 
Job did, but anyone in here have one of those? I remember I had a little boil. It was a little itty-bitty thing, but boy, it hurt, you know. It just ruins your whole day. Imagine being covered with those from head to foot. You can't move. You can't, you can't sit down without being in pain. You can't lay down without being in pain. You can't operate without being in pain. You can't wear clothes because everything that touches your skin brings agony. This is God's judgment being poured out in final, final fury. Bowl two, the sea has turned to blood. What part of it? All of it now. Now, in the second trumpet, a third. Now we have all of the sea turned to blood. Now, if all of the sea is contaminated, where do you get your drinking water? Where do you get that? You, you don't, right? That's why I don't think... Some have said, well, the vials and the... And, not the vials, but the bowls and the trumpets are sort of interspersed throughout the tribulation. Look, I'll tell you what. If you got all of the water turning to blood and you can't drink anything, how long do you last? Days. Not very long. It says every living thing in the sea died. Now again, I don't think this is real physical, literal hemoglobin, but what does it look like to John? Blood. Polluted. So, by the way, it's going to freak out the poor save the whales crowd, isn't it? And what happens in the third... third bold and it's poured out. Well, it says here that the fountains of water are turned to blood. What's that? That's the fresh water. Now, not only do you have the seas turned to blood, but now the fresh water is turned to blood as well. How does God do this? I'm not exactly sure how God does this. How did God turn the Nile River to blood? Or what looked like blood? I don't know. But God can certainly do that. God has the power to do that. Not only the ocean's undrinkable, but the water's undrinkable. What's going to happen to men now? They're going to die of thirst. They're not going to have any water. Um, and what's this is interesting here, you have heaven saying, you know, God, you're doing the right thing. Because what did they do? They killed your believers. They spilled the blood of the martyrs. Now you've given them blood to drink. You've given them exactly what they deserve. You see, yeah, you see justice. And by the way, don't, don't get too freaked out about that because a lot of people when they read this, they say, wow, you know, that's pretty crass of the redeemed in heaven to, to you know, be wanting God to destroy and, and, and bring judgment on people. Wait a minute, in heaven, what are you going to have that you don't have now? You're going to have a perfect understanding of what? God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice. This is, not, this is not some selfish response. You know, it's the same thing as the, what is it, the martyrs under the altar where they're crying out to God to avenge the blood, their blood. This is not, God, just get back at them to get back at them. But they see their death, they see the hatred that men have poured out on them and killing them as a violation of what? God's justice, God's character, that which is right. And there is a cry for justice to be done. This is not, this is not a, a selfish kind of thing. It can't be, right? Because if it is, then you've got what? Sin in heaven. You know, well, you don't, you don't have that. This is a cry for God to be righteous, God to be holy, God to be just. God to... Execute righteous judgment against those who killed and martyred the believers. And by the way, how many believers are going to be martyred? Lots of them. This is not a very good time to be alive. And that's why, you know, again, when last week when we ended our class, it's silly for someone to say, well, I'm not sure the Bible stuff is all right, but I'll, I'll just sort of, you know, wait. And, you know, if, if all of a sudden all these people disappear and the rapture occurs, and all of a sudden I see Antichrist, then I'll know that this is right, and I'll believe, look, your chances of making it through there are pretty slim. They're not very good. When you look at 50% of the people in the world dying, all of a sudden right there, you don't have a very good chance. You have a 50-50 chance of living, the, surviving the wars and the judgments, much less everything else is happening. 
Don't bank on that. If you want to believe, now's the time to do it. You don't put it off and hope that it works out. That's a stupid statement. That's a stupid statement, but people make it. But you got all the waters turning to blood. You've got the sea's blood, the water's blood. And that's why I think this is right at the end where, where there's a rapid fire pouring out of these things. Because if this lasted for any significant length of time, what would happen to everybody on the world? They would die. People would die. They would not be able to live. All right, so this is not something that's drawn out over a long period of time. Bowl number four, the sun scorches men. Remember, in the trumpet, a third of the sun was dark, and now what happens? God turns up the heat. Now, it not only turns up the heat, but what are you missing? All the water. So, the heat goes up, the water goes down. What does that make you? Miserable. How does it do that? How, how does God do that? Well, I don't know how God does that. But by the way, God created the sun, right? Do, do you understand? And this is, you know, when you read the, or when you look at the science channel, and, and that, you know, they, they got some good stuff on there if you weed it out. But you know how, how amazing it is that the earth is the exact distance from the sun it needs to be in order to sustain life as we know it. We're talking about, it's, it's called the Goldilocks zone around the star. There's a Goldilocks zone that a, that a planet has to be in in order to have liquid water. We are at the exact distance, no more, no less, where that works. If we were a little closer to the sun, it'd be too hot for us to live. If we're just a little bit farther away, it'd be too cold. Water would freeze. We would not be able to survive. We're at the right, right distance. And not only that, but the solar constant. What's that? That's the amount of light and heat and radiation the sun emits. Has been constant throughout human history. There are some stars out there that get bright and dark and bright and dark and bright and dark. If our sun did that, we couldn't survive because it get really hot then really cold and really hot then really cold. God is... God has designed this solar system and designed this planet at just the right spot with just the right distance from the sun with just the right conditions in order to sustain our life. But if God turned the heat of the sun up just 1 or 2%, our temperatures would soar on the planet. 1 or 2%, not much. 1 or 2%. And God's going to turn the heat up. And by the way, it's natural for certain stars to go through these times where they get a slightly hotter. It's like, cool, there's variability in stars. Our sun has been constant. But what is God going to do? He's going to turn the heat up. And not only that, it's going to cause drought. Men are going to be scorched by the heat. Now, if the Bible says they're going to be scorched by the heat, how hot is that? Pretty hot. This is not just, well, we're a little uncomfortable, we'll crank up the AC a little bit. This is really hot. I'm told, I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm, I was told that the, the upper limit that you can survive in is like 120 degrees, somewhere around in there. Any higher than that, you can't live for any length of time, 120 degrees. Now, what was it like if, uh, you know, you walked down on a cool day and it was 110 and the green grass is burned up, the trees are burned up. You don't have water, you don't have your Kool-Aid, you don't have your Coors Light to cool off. The swimming pool is filled with gross stuff you can't cool off in the pool. You're going to be miserable. This is God making it miserable. It's almost a preview of what eternal hell is going to be like. And what's men going to do? How are they going to respond? Are they going to say, Uncle, okay, God, we believe? No. They're going to curse God. They're going to curse him. Why are you doing this? They're going to be angry with God. What's the fifth ball? Now the sun goes really hot and then what happens? God turns out the lights. How does he do that? Well, I don't know how he does this. I don't know how he turns out the lights. He turns out the sun. Go figure that one out. I don't know whether some stellar body comes in between us and the sun, but he could do that, right? Bring something in between to have an eclipse. It could be dust that the solar system travels through this really dusty spot. 
in the, in the, in the universe where all of a sudden the, the light of the sun goes down I, and, and the light of the stars goes down. That might be the most likely explanation. It doesn't take a whole lot of dust out there to, to obscure the sun, by the way. You realize that. I don't know how God does it, but God turns down the lights. And what's he turning down the lights in, in uh, anticipation of? Well, Christ is coming back, right? And what do you see happening in Matthew 24? Just before the coming of, the, of Christ, what does it say? The sun and the moon go dark, and then the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven. God turns out all the other stellar bodies and shines the spotlight on who? Christ. And what do men still do? They blaspheme and will not believe. Go bigger. They're seeing God come back physically and they still don't believe. Because they're hardened in their sin. I don't know how this is done. Literally, I don't know how God does this, but I'm going to take God on his word for it that he's going to pull it off this way. He turns the lights out. Then what happens in the sixth bowl? Well, the river Euphrates is dried up. Why is that? Well, that makes the armies, that allows the armies of the world to come where? To the battle of Armageddon. Battle of Armageddon. By the way, where's the Euphrates River? Throws through Babylon. So it allows the kings of the east. Who's the kings of the east? Well, you got Pakistan, China, India, all those nations. They're now able to make it easily over to the battle of Armageddon. God is setting the stage to draw all the people together where? In the battle of Armageddon. The final battle. So he brings them together. God gathers them together. And he makes it easy because he allows the river Euphrates to be dried up. Well, you've already got the, the heat. You've got, uh, you're losing the, um, the, the waters turn to blood. The, sea, the oceans are turned to blood, and now he prepares the way for the armies to come across. Then what happens in chapter 7, or bowl 7, that's really the last one. The great earthquake and the completion of God's wrath. What do you have? A great earthquake felt worldwide, causing the mountains to fall and the islands to be submerged in the sea. It says this is a great seismos. Now, I've never been in an earthquake, but they're not fun. Think about a global earthquake. What do you mean by that? It's like God takes the earth and just shakes it. And, and the, the, the description of the shaking is so great that what happens to the mountains? They collapse. What happens to the islands? They become submerged. This, this is a complete redefinition of the topology of the earth. This is not just a little Richter scale 5-0 weenie kind of thing that you know, rattles the dishes on the shelf a little bit. This is the kind that causes worldwide devastation. Buildings fall. Streets are destroyed. Mountains collapse. Islands disappear. This is massive. And then what does he do? It's followed by hail weighing about 100 pounds. That, that'll hurt, wouldn't it, if it hits you on the head? You ever get beamed by a small piece of hail? All right, this is about 100 pounds weight. If you're on the open, you're done for. I mean, you get hit by one of these things, that's all she wrote. And, and you have massive hail. Um, God is just basically obliterating the face of the planet almost. Just worldwide. And what happens? Instead of repenting, what do men do? Blasphemy. They don't repent. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I, I look at this, I say, what idiots would not repent? And the point is, all of us. Unless God opens our hearts, none of us would believe. None of us, are, you wouldn't be here today. 
But God has given men every chance. And by the way, when it's all said and done, and these men stand before God in judgment, God can say, you know, I gave you every opportunity, and you refused to take it. The fault is yours. So, anyways, we'll pick up with the Battle of Armageddon and the return of Christ next week. How's that? Father, thank you for this day and for the time we've had to study. Thank you for opening our hearts to help us to understand and believe, Father. We thank you that you've saved us and called us to yourself. And I pray that we would be diligent to tell others of the good news as well to escape this time of great tribulation. We thank you for this day again in Christ's name. Amen.